Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 102, The Customs of Our Land. In past episodes, we have put into place the situation Wales was in, and, of course, England. To an extent that we have seen increasing conflict was likely inevitable, as the Welsh native lords and the Crown and the Marcher lords continued to struggle over how to consider the Welsh in English structure as both subject and separate It was in the midst of all this conflict that debate over boundaries, property, and control became a flashpoint for trouble. In 1278, Llewellyn ap Glenwynwyn fought a massive legal battle in the English courts over who ruled Arwistley, a small territory in mid-Wales which had been fought over between Gwyneth and Powys for many, many years, going back at least to the Norman Conquest. Specifically for Llewellyn, This is an issue that should have been decided in Welsh courts, not English ones. Never mind the fact that he felt that land should have never been given back anyway in 1277. The frustration for Llewellyn on this case boiled down to what appeared to be that the subjects of the English crown had different rules than those of the Welsh. The English lived under English rules, Scots and Irish had their own set of laws. Even the Gascons had their own laws, but the Welsh did not have control of Welsh legal decisions. Edward, of course, played favorites, and in this case honored his loyal Powys lords over Llewellyn. The prince would complain, but Edward continued to be mercurial at best in how he dealt with him. This battle over who really ruled in Wales was the heart of the problem with Edward and Llewellyn. Edward wanted the Welsh to be just members of his nobility, little different from the English lords. Llewellyn, much like a lot of the other native lords, clung to the idea that it was the natives that had self-determination and that others should be subject to their rules. With all of this in mind, Llewellyn must have understood better than most just how tenuous his position was at this point. Not wanting to set off on another war with Edward, Llewellyn was likely gritting his teeth through these disputes. His brother, not well known for his patience, David set off on his own crusade against the English. The problem for David and many of the Welsh were that the English lords and those in charge of crown lands were creating harassments and headaches. Specifically, people like Roger Clifford, Roger Lestrange and Bogo de Noville, probably one of my favorite names, who were considered to be officials who misused and abused the Welsh. However, probably the most notorious lord and the one who receives the largest blame, including from historians such as Sean Davies and Beverly Smith, was Reginald de Grey. De Grey was the one-time sheriff of Nottingham, which seems mildly ironic, who was appointed to the Justice of Chester in 1281 and was the Chief Justice for the Four Cantriffs. Key to the complaints in Rouse and, uh, in English, Englefield in the Cantriffs was that Welsh law was not respected and that the English consistently avoided the Welsh judicial laws. When de Grey was said to have arrived, it was said by the local community that he put in place stringent restrictions which made the laws even worse, and more to the point, ignored any previous laws or case law. This may be down to him, or it could have been down to the local Welsh enforcing things all that more stringently on their own were not 
fully sure. But the reality of it is, is that things did get worse. And on top of all this, de Grey was ruling as if he, not the king, was lord over the area. You have to remember at this time, the four cantrifts are basically ruled by the king, who ruled over the area, not one of his nobility at this point. His rule went so far as to threaten to behead anyone who appealed to justice above him. Not usually a power wielded by someone who's simply a court official representing the crown. The fact that Grey had so alarmed the public that they threw down their oaths to the king to go to arms against the English in what obviously would be perceived as a rebellion showed that few in this area felt that they were being treated fairly and that it was worth a massive risk that they were taking to punish this king's representative. So when the citizens of the four cantors rose up, as they did, to seek vengeance and to gain wealth and to take back what they felt they were owed, they did so in, at least at this point, a spontaneous manner. This was not a slow burn, but rather an open blaze, which turned into a wildfire within just a few days. This coincided with a general sense of anger and remorse for joining the king amongst the nobility. This is key to what would occur, as so many nobles who originally had sided with the king would also feel the wrath for changing sides this time. David, for example, hated the way he'd been treated by de Grey, and as a citizen of the crown, not as an independent ruler within English control. His fury grew when de Grey ruled against him and forced David to call, like his brother, for the establishment of Welsh law as the only determining law in Wales. Within five years, Edward saw almost his entire Welsh native allies slip over to Llewellyn, once again as their frustration grew. This time, the irritation was not the marcher lords, but the king himself, who had created these problems. The Welsh nobility, like their citizens, saw that they could not find fair treatment under English law. Combine that with more and more control coming to English overseers in courts across Wales, or the fact that they were moving English settlers in effectively to pacify the locals, must have been even more infuriating. These immigrants, which we'll talk about in further detail, did not come in as simple peasants and farmers, but also came in as wealthy merchants and landlords who would hold dominion in the cities and towns that would be created. It would be a flashpoint on Welsh and English relations for the next 800 years, to be honest. Two key Welsh lords remained on the king's side during all of these problems. One, Griffith ap Gwenwynwyn, was only back on his seat due to Edward, of course, and then there was Rhys ap Merduth ap Duthbarth, who continued to support Edward even as his frustrations with the English continued to cause him and his relatives trouble. For example, Rhys's brother Griffith complained in a similar vein to others in that he had said, All Christians have laws and customs in their own territories, and the complaints that the Welsh and their predecessors had immutable laws and customs in their land until the English took their laws from them after the last war. So in other words, what the Welsh saw was that prior to 1277, they had control of their own laws and their own customs and their own culture. With the rise of English immigrancy and English control, that ended. As this harassment and considered affront continued, many in the native parts of Wales uh, 
felt that they could no longer live like this. Many simply felt that their concerns were no longer important to Edward and his court, and much like the Scots, Edward misinterpreted allegiance with acceptance, and his miscalculation would, as mentioned before, lead to a Welsh uprising over Easter week of 1282. The movement by leaders in Powys Fadog, such as Griffith ap Feichan, saw them attack Ostwy, the old Welsh-English border town, and many of its residents were seen as culprits who had been despoiling the land around Powys and angering the residents there, so in some respects payback was, in quotes, coming. Palm Sunday saw the outbreak of rebellion in the north and east. Griffith and his brother Llewellyn attacked Ostwy twice in the preceding weeks. In 1277, most of these lords had sided with Edward, but they were now firmly-ish in the Welsh camp. As we'll see, Welsh flexibility still continued to confound unity amongst its own lords. The English would criticize the Welsh and seek excommunication and call for a crusade of sorts against them for fighting on Easter week. So this idea of fighting during this period was considered to be a stunning breach in protocol. However, of course... The English themselves had done similar in 1277, but why quibble with facts when you have outrage to make and taxes to gain? David may well have been driven to this point because of his brother's announcement that his wife was pregnant, meaning that if Llewellyn had a male heir, it would shut him out of the inheritance of the western half of Gwyneth. It would mean that David would remain basically a tenant of the king and unable to create his own dynasty. Meanwhile, slowly, Llewellyn was gathering a cadre of willing lords, including those who had been exiled previously by Edward after 1277. As these exiled lords entered the halls of the prince, it would be an obvious provocation, even if, at this point, Llewellyn was not determined to go to war. Edward, not known for his infinite temper and gentle nature, would have been probably ready to go to war at this point regardless of these moves. The attacks on English-created towns by David and his allies in the east were likely a message that they wanted to let the immigrants know that they were not welcome. Flint and Rudland were attacked on the Welsh side of the border, and on March 24th, Aberystwyth Castle was taken through what was considered devious means, and the castle garrison, because of it, were spared of death. In other words, they had invited the uh, head of the castle over for dinner and then took him prisoner. Other sites fell to the Welsh shortly after in the spring of 1282, which, unfortunately, was the high tide of the Welsh side of the war. However, Llewellyn had not been involved in these early days. He claimed ignorance of even knowing anything about them, even though the English themselves had felt he deeply and was personally involved. In fact, earlier in October of 1281, Llewellyn had signed a treaty with his former enemy, Roger Mortimer, this in part was likely because they no longer bordered each other and conflicted over land, as well as them being concerned about other landlords that were actually between them, including marcher lords and native Welsh lords. So at this point, it was kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of idea. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. 
Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week, like breakfast, on the go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Whether Llewellyn directed this attack from afar, which it seems clearly he did not, it seems to be clear that he did not enter actually in any sort of war until after the birth of his daughter. In fact, as far as the English were concerned, perception was reality. For Edward, the Welsh were traitors who needed to be brought to heel, and Llewellyn and his brother were the chief troublemakers. Within a few days, Edward had met with his council, and they acted quicker than even in 1277, moving to try and gather forces for a May mustering of troops. It is claimed that Edward may have possibly listened to the advice given by Gerald of Wales on how to conquer the Welsh. In his book, Gerald had said, Any prince who really is determined to conquer the Welsh and to govern them in peace must proceed as follows. He should First of all, understand that the whole year, at least, he should devote every part of his effort and give undivided attention to the task he has undertaken. He can never hope to conquer in one single battle a people which will never draw up its forces to engage an enemy army in the field, and will never allow itself to be besieged inside fortified strong points. He can beat them only by patient, unremitting pressure applied over a long period, knowing the spirit of hatred and jealousy which usually prevails among them, he must sow dissension in their ranks and do all he can by promises and bribes to stir them up against each other. Obviously, this was something 
that Edward had done previously and certainly would be something he would continue to try and do during this particular war. As well, Gerald advised staying close to allies, remaining sure of supply lines, and to have lightly armored troops that could easily be replaced and could meet the Welsh troops anywhere they appeared, obviously in heavily forced regions having a heavily armed cavalry could be slightly problematic. The English were in the field by the fourth week of April and moving against the Welsh along the northern routes once again. Edward brought troops from as far away as Savoy to fight against the Welsh forces. They would not go far, but they would be the first strikes to show that the English were meaning business this time. By summer, Edward was ready to march in full force, and like 1277, he had three prongs of attack ready to go after the Welsh from the south, the middle, and the north to once again cut off the supplies of the Welsh leadership and sow dissension where possible. This time, they would face a much larger resistance and much more united Welsh front. Culture trumped the petty grievances amongst the various Welsh lords. This was simply a fight for survival, and they knew it. While, spoilers, Edward won this war, he did so because of superior experience, money, and manpower. It was a war that did not have to happen, however. The king, because of his arrogance and ignorance, at least from what I can see, did nothing to create a peace or set any sort of path where they could come to any kind of arrangement that would work for the Welsh. Both in Scotland and in Wales, because of his desire for English dominance, it was a complete victory or nothing. Not only in recognition of the Lord of the British Isles, but it also must make them come to heel to the nation that is England. As historian Mark Morris put it so well, Edward, in all probability, did not set out deliberately to provoke Wales, its inhabitants, or its prince. Nor, in all probability, did the men whom he appointed to administer it. But both king and officials were conditioned at birth to regard the Welsh as an inferior race. If they preferred to conduct business on English lines, it was because those lines were to them self-evidently more sensible than the backward, barbarous ways of a people whose language, habits, and culture they could not comprehend. Many have contested for both political and cultural reasons that the British Empire started in 1283 with the conquest of Wales. It is reasonably hard to argue with that point. Edward wanted Wales to be a part of the English domain, no different than Northumbria, Essex, or Cornwall for that matter. Edward had learned the lessons from his father that weakness was not strength, that compassion led to betrayal, and that iron fists work far better than velvet gloves. He was decisive and deadly, and as such, he likely created the modern United Kingdom, but he also created a Britain that could never really reconcile that they were a nation of nations. They never could come to grips with how and why they were different from each other. And in all actuality, when you read through the documents and have a look at the commentary that goes back and forth between each side, the one thing that screams out to you is how often the Welsh leadership and likely the Welsh population felt that their differences meant that they should be treated differently, that they should be considered differently, but not only that, that they should be considered fairly and treated fairly. And in a way, that was the downfall of the Welsh leadership in actuality.
because the English were so much bigger, so much more powerful, there was no way for them to equal or come to grips or defeat them in a way that would make sense. And unlike Scotland, which had narrow land masses and natural borders that they could use against them, and most importantly, a strong ally to appeal to in France, the Welsh at this time just didn't have any of those connections or any of those abilities. The English would in fact make fun of this later, and we'll talk a bit about that in the next episode, but the reality of it was is that the Welsh leadership at this point had been so ensconced into the English government and so much a part of it that, as we've mentioned before, the reality of it is is that independence for a Welsh nation had long since ceased to be. Most of what was going on now was mostly a fight between different lords with the King of England. And realistically, that was certainly how Edward perceived it. No matter what Llewellyn or David or any of their allies may have seen it as, this was seen not dissimilar to the Barons' revolt as far as Edward was concerned. And Edward would treat it very similarly, including how he treated these leaders when he caught up with them finally. The sad truth of the matter is, is that as far as the English were concerned, the Welsh were just an inconvenience in the way at this point to their natural possession of the English fact and the idea that they should and by right should dominate the British Isles. And this mentality will go a long way to creating some of the problems that, of course, will continue to fester to this day in the British Isles. Um, you only have to look at the history of these nations to see that. If in the end Edward was the king who created this nation, then he was also the king who sowed the seeds of doubt, which would separate this nation or could separate this nation at some point in the future. The reality of it is, is that the Plantagenet dynasty was trying to create an empire that crossed from Britain onto the continent and would try and capture all of France in the process. Basically, an imperial Roman-style leadership. And let's make no mistake here, the Plantagenets, led by Henry and then Edward, were not English the way we would think of them. They were people who spoke French, typically. They conversed in writing in Latin. They didn't necessarily know the vernacular of the local population and certainly would see anyone outside of those realms as being outsiders. And what little control that the Welsh had had been slowly eaten away ever since Alfred more or less made his bid to try and enforce a uh, liege lord status over the Welsh nations. And really, ever since that time, the Welsh nations have struggled to try and get away from that, and they certainly will not, to this stage, get away from it. And as we'll see going forward, this will be continually a problem for the Welsh in the future. But for now, we're going to end that here. We're going to uh, focus next episode on the war itself and the final end of the princes of Wales. And uh, until next time, everyone, you can 
talk to me on Twitter at Welsh History Podcast. Uh, you can contact me at Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to me via Facebook. Uh, I've talked to a few of you on there, which has been great. Uh, at Facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.